Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Some decades ago, a young writing student submitted a master's thesis to the University of Chicago. The thesis posited that stories have shapes, that there is a trajectory to most stories, and this trajectory can be mapped on a graph. And what really is central to all story, what really binds stories together, is their common shape. The vision was simple. Stories were plotted on a graph in which the vertical axis was ill fortune to good fortune, and the horizontal axis was beginning to end. And plotted that way, there was a particular waveform to each story. Stories could then be grouped together by their shape, and there were several groupings that, taken together, accounted for pretty much all the stories we tell. Well, the University of Chicago rejected the student's thesis, too cutesy, too oversimplified. The great literature of Western culture can't possibly be reduced to little wave-like shapes. Little did they know that the student in question would go on to become one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. His name was Kurt Vonnegut, and he said later that his thesis on the shape of stories was his prettiest contribution to the culture. Well, there's no reason why the simple shapes of stories can't be fed into computers. They are beautiful shapes. This is the GI axis, good fortune, ill fortune. Sickness and poverty down here, wealth and, and boisterous good health up there. Here's the very middle. Now, this is the BE axis. B stands for beginning, E stands for electricity. <laughs> now, this is an exercise in relativity, really, is the shape of the curves are what matters and not their origins. There is a simple elegance to this view. It's why we talk about things like story arc. Most romantic comedies, for example, follow a very clear mappable arc. The couple falls in love, then they suffer a setback, and that's followed by a culminating moment that reaffirms their love for one another in a way that takes them even higher than before. High, low, higher. You can picture it. You can picture the wave the shape. Some stories follow the opposite trajectory. Steve Martin's classic comedy, The Jerk, promotes itself as a rags-to-riches and back-to-rags story. Low, high, low. Years after Vonnegut's rejected thesis, MIT researchers picked up where he left off and detailed six basic emotional arcs of stories. Six shapes. Rags to riches, which is an ongoing emotional rise. Tragedy, or riches to rags, an ongoing emotional fall. Man in a hole, a fall followed by a rise. Icarus, a rise followed by a fall. Cinderella, rise, fall, rise. And Oedipus, fall, rise, fall. Vonnegut and MIT noted that Cinderella is a very popular shape. Rise, fall, rise. There has to be a setback, an obstacle to overcome. There has to be a pulse to the wave. All of these stories, in fact, plotted on a graph would look like some form of sine wave. All stories follow the basic principle of wave dynamics, oscillations in relation to center. 
If you take out the descriptions of the axes in Vonnegut's thesis, good fortune, ill fortune, and all that, and simply look at the shape, it's the shape of a sine wave. Every song ever sung looks like this. In fact, everything looks like this. If you have a big enough recording device and you could record every sound being emitted across the universe right now, it would look like a single wave, an oscillation around a center line. Now, imagine if you change your perspective, if you move this sine wave axis so that it is a point facing directly at you instead of a line, then all sound, all song, all the stories in the universe are going to look like an expansion away from that point and a contraction back in, like tree rings, like a pebble in a clear pond, like a universe expanding from a single point and reabsorbing back in. Universes are made this way and end this way, and so are breaths, and so are heartbeats, and so are nations, and so are stories. Through the medium of what in the tantric traditions is called unmesha and nimesha, expansion and contraction. Because that is the fabric of reality, the fundamental wave dynamics of vibration that are present in everything are present in the trajectory of stories. These wave dynamics of story aren't just ideas or a nice way of looking at it, or even just, as Vonnegut said, pretty. The story is an actual journey whose medium is wave dynamics and whose shape is the specific force of the story and the transmission of the story and how it moves through the body. When we hear the story of Anga, as Martin Shaw tells it, when we hear of his great journey through stark forests and the cool, moist suit of forest moss he patched together to defeat a fire-breathing serpent, we are taken on an inner journey, and we feel the starkness of the forest and the coolness of the moss and the somatics of journeying far away and returning. Mythic stories of exile and return are stories of a particular type of traverse that must be undertaken. Where does that traverse take place? It takes place in the body of the listener-practitioner. It takes place kinesthetically. We may not relate to stories of being cast out of mythical gardens, but we all relate to the feeling of departing and returning. When Persephone's great cult enacted her story every year, her descent to the underworld and her rise again... The experience, enhanced by entheogens and days of fasting and dancing and singing, was an inner journey from heights to depths and back to heights. All of these stories move in certain directions, exile and return, to the underworld and back. And the power of the story is that we feel those directional movements in our bodies. These are the basic energetics at work in consciousness and in the breath cycle, and in the organs of the body, and in the cosmos. So the myth is meant to take us on an inner directional journey. There are myths that are myths of rising and falling. There are myths that are myths of separation and return. There are myths that are myths of coiling and release. There are myths that are about movement away from and back to center. There are myths of dissolution and settling. Myths invoke directional energies. They mirror the movement of energy through the body and the cosmos, and they invoke this energy. A good myth of rising will give you a feeling of rising. A good myth of coiling will be felt right in the core. A good myth of return feels like coming home. <laughs>
this somatic wave journey isn't just speculative mythopoetics. New research shows the direct connection between story and brainwave activity. Quote, As you hear a story unfold, your brainwaves actually start to synchronize with those of the storyteller, says Uri Hassan, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. When he and his research team recorded the brain activity in two people as one person told a story and the other listened, they found that the greater the listener's comprehension, the more closely the brainwave patterns mirrored those of the storyteller. So the story is literally a way to take the listener practitioner on a journey. From the study itself, quote, we use the speaker's spatiotemporal brain activity to model listener's brain activity and found that the speaker's activity is spatially and temporally coupled with the listener's activity. In this space-time of story with the listener somatically linked to the wave dynamics of the story, a traverse takes place, the traverse of trance in which insight and information flood the body in a way that is far more meaningful than that of mental analysis. One Stanford study showed that memory retention from oral storytelling is 22 times greater than simply reading a fact. Cultures survive through story, and story was and is a continuation of directional energetic cycles in nature and in the body. So stories do, in fact, have dynamic living shapes, pulsing on and on into infinity. The shape of stories, how myths move through bodies and worlds, this time on The Emerald. shape of this story is rising and falling. Rising. Falling. What rises and falls? Empires, civilizations, species dominance, waves, evaporating water, breath, universes, rising, falling. Do you feel the shape of this story? There's a classic tale of rise and fall and rise and fall again. The story of Sisyphus. You know Sisyphus, sentenced to roll a great stone all the way up to the top of the mountain rising slowly up and up and up and up until the summit is reached. And then the boulder rolls all the way back to the bottom and he has to roll it all the way back up, rising, falling for eternity. Classically, the story has been interpreted as one of futility. Poor guy, he's got to roll that rock forever. But is that what it's getting at? Futility is an idea, an ascription. 
the old stories work in energetic movements. They work in shapes. How does it feel to hear the story of Sisyphus rising, falling? How does it feel to hear the sound of his name? Sisyphus. His story is the story of the breath. Mythologist Joseph Sansanese tells us, quote, The origin of the name Sisyphus is onomatopoetic of the continual back-and-forth susurrant sound made by the breath in the nasal passages. Situating the mythology of Sisyphus in a far larger context of archaic, trance-inducing techniques related to breath control, the repetitive inhalation-exhalation cycle is described esoterically in the myth as an up-down motion of Sisyphus and his boulder on a hill. End quote. The story is the shape of rising and falling. The story is the shape of the breath. Sisyphus, son of Aeolus, king of the winds, who kept the four winds in a cave in the center of his kingdom, Sisyphus tries to cheat death and is punished with an eternal rise and fall. But that eternal rise and fall is actually the way to cheat death. Accompanying the cycle of rise and fall following the breath, which leads to liberation. Sisyphus. We are born into this life breathing and breath defines the life itself. We come in with an inhale and go out with an exhale. This entire life will be one of rising and falling. It's up to us if the repetitive rising and falling and rising again is a sentence or the greatest liberation. We can ascribe futility to it if we want. That part is up to us. The story is a wave that rises and falls. The question for us is what do we think it means? What do we do with it? There is a great beauty to this pulse of rise and fall. Vegetation rises and then it falls. It's why we call autumn the fall. The story of Persephone, vegetation goddess, glorious in the full flower of her beauty, as she is taken suddenly into the depths, is the story of rise and fall. Demeter's sorrow freezes the world until her daughter rises again. It is the rise and fall of vegetation, the rise and fall of seasonal cycles, the rise and fall of breath, the rise and fall of states of consciousness, the rise and fall of life. The enactment of her journey in the mysteries of Eleusis took the initiate into depths of darkness, fear, grief, awe, and then at dawn, the goddess rises. At dawn the goddess rises, and the initiates rose, and danced on the green lawns, and beheld the world through new eyes. The ritual allowed for an enactment of an essential cycle of rising and falling. For our moods, our hormones, our breath, all of this rises and falls. Enacting these cycles allows us to bring a rhythm to it so that the polarities of mood we feel in this life are ritually given space to rise 
and fall. And if I'm feeling too much rise and fall in my life, sometimes it's worth asking, do I have ritual enactments of rise and fall and rise and fall? Poor Tantalos never found peace and presence within the cycles of rise and fall. Tantalos tries to steal the nectar of immortality, and then he's sentenced to stand forever in a pool beneath a fruit tree. And when he stoops to try to drink the water, it falls so that he can't get it. And when he lifts his head up to eat the fruit, the tree rises so he can't get it. He's always looking for something just out of reach. When the nectar of immortality is here and now, the inability to sit with the cycles of rising and falling is exactly what keeps him from being able to claim the nectar. Modern, progress-oriented nations like the United States live similarly tantalized. Tantalized by the eternal rise. We put forth a narrative whose shape is a perpetual rise. In doing so, doom ourselves to ritually enact our own fall over and over again. A skyscraper is meant to be a story of perpetual rise, but already embedded within the shape of that story is the force of time or gravity or the terrorist that will bring about the tower's fall. Our rituals, our stories, our social structures, perhaps even our design structures need to understand the wave dynamics of rise and fall. If the only story we tell is one of rise, then we subject ourselves to enacting fall. The shape of this story is scattering and uniting. Scattering and uniting. The shape of this story is a body torn to pieces and tossed here and there across the cosmos. Thaltutli, the mother goddess, torn to pieces. Purusha in the Vedas, Emir, the frost giant in the Norse traditions. Sati, the divine mother in later India. One body sacrificed into many parts births this world of diversity and intricacy. Her blood becomes the waters, her bones the mountains, her hair the trees and grasses, her brains the clouds above. The universe enacts a great sacrifice whose nature is oneness dismembered. Singularity becomes the periodic table. Oneness becomes manyness. This sacrifice is a primal shape, a movement, a dispersing. The sparagmos, the tearing apart for the Greeks, is both cosmic and societal and personal. The universe is birthed through tearing apart the body of the god. Time dismembers eternity. Death births life. Sacrifice brings renewal. When a society seeks to over-constrain, there is a natural movement towards dismemberment, towards scattering. The Dionysian cult tears animals apart at the apex of the ecstatic ritual. Sparagmos, tearing apart. Pentheus, king of Thebes, seeks to impose limits on the Sparagmos. And then he finds himself torn apart by his own mother. The society must allow for its ritual releases, or it itself will be torn apart. And so it is in our own bodies and minds. Dionysus urges the Minyades to come to the Sparagmos to ritually enact this dynamic of tearing apart. They reject him. He comes to them again, this time in the form of a panther. They reject him. 
The walls of their home start to grow with climbing ivy. They hear drums and flutes playing in their own heads. He offers again, come to the great tearing apart. They reject him. Then the madness sets in. In a fit of madness, they tear their own family apart. We have to ritually enact rupture, release, tearing apart, or we tear each other apart instead. What has gathered together needs to be torn apart. Ritual tearing apart is vital. This is the shape of the story, the shape of the knots we hold and the tensions we suffer and the relationships we seek so hard to hold on to long past their day. And what is torn apart needs to come together. What has been dismembered, separated, must be remembered. All ritual enshrines these basic dynamics. The good bard, the good poet understands this as they sing of the tearing apart of the god's body. They are taking the listener on a journey of sparagmos, of tearing apart, and ultimately a journey of remembering. So if I were to tell you a story, a story perhaps best heard lying down with the eyes closed, a story of a body, a great body vast as the sky, with hair that enjoins worlds and forms the space between stars. And then that body begins to come apart. The toes loosen from the feet, the heels separate. All the little ankle bones, the tarsals float off into space, dissolve to powder. The tendons unravel and the soft tissues melt. The liquids dissipate and the shin bones and the knees and the kneecaps float away. The great ball and socket joint of the hips comes undone. The femurs crack open and pink marrow dissipates into the void. The pelvis crumbles. The tendons and connective tissues holding the internal organs all melt away. A rosary of intestines spirals into space and is disintegrated. And the rib cage cracks open and the ribs float off one by one. And the suspensory ligaments of the heart and lungs dissolve and the heart and lungs melt away. And the throat and all that tension around the larynx, all the things said and unsaid dissolve into void. And the void receives all the words this body has ever spoken or not spoken and resolves them into a silent purple hum. And the collarbones separate and float off, and the shoulder joints loosen. The trapezius muscles, the great bearer of burdens, all those tight fibers dissolve like tenderized meat and liquefy into nothing. The arm bones release and vaporize. Vaporize. The sinews, the elbows, the tough fiber between the two forearm bones releases into cloud. All the constructs of tension around the wrist bones, all that typing, 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 typing. The wrist bones release and scatter. The phalanges, the finger bones, all that doing and grasping and holding that we do with the fingers, all that melts away. And at last the skull dislodges, the axis separates from the atlas, the skull tumbles through space. Unbound, the jaw comes off of the skull. The teeth float out of the jaw. The sinuses crack and crumble into dust. That dust is blown away with a single breath. 
The eyeballs float out of the eye sockets and wash into oblivion. The scalp releases at last, at last the scalp releases. The hair floats away from the scalp. The brains, the electric gelatinous carnival of thought and sensation evaporates into void. Evaporates into void. Void, void, ringing void. The body dismembers and resolves itself into void. This would be the story of your body, of all bodies, of the great universal body, bodies in their constant pulse between dismembering and remembering again, dismembering and remembering again. This would be the story of life, of the breath, this would be the story of journey and return. The shape of this story is journey and return. Journey and return. Why are there so many stories of journey and return? Well, simply put, human beings for centuries and centuries have had to journey in order to get things done. A journey is required to find food. A journey is required to find water. A journey through the perils of the forest is ancestrally embedded into our bodies. It's something we've done forever. Journey and return. The shape of this story is journey and return. A lot has been made, of course, of the story of the hero's journey. You can't study myth without studying the hero's journey. There's a shape to it. It's drawn as a circle sometimes a circle of departure and return. Recently, the hero's journey has come under fire from some critics. And this criticism, of course, also follows a trajectory of journey and return, of consolidating and tearing apart. Joseph Campbell consolidates the myths of the world and unites them with a common theme in an act of drawing together. And then what's the natural way of progression? Critics come in and say, not so fast. Is this really universal? They tear apart what was once a unified theory in favor of a lens of specificity. This is the pulse of consolidating and tearing apart. This is the sine wave, the unmesha and nimesha. Globalism promises one world. We're all one, one market, one common economic paradigm. What's the resultant wave? Regional nationalism says not so fast. We're separate and distinct, and our survival depends on such. This is the pulse. For centuries, humanity struggles to forge one common vision of human rights. Post-World War II, that vision coalesces into one universal declaration. But declarations of universality are setting themselves up in their inherent shape through the law of wave dynamics to be torn apart. The body of the goddess coalesces and then scatters again and again. The pilgrimage, it says in the Kumari Kakanda, must be done a countless number of times. This is the pulse of consolidating 
and tearing apart. The same force that births universes drives human ritual and fires the trajectory of stories. These days, you have to be careful about the word universal because what applies to me, a white guy from the United States, does not apply to everybody. Experiences, trajectories, stories, conflicts are deeply shaped by colonialism, racism, and class divide. The recognition of distinct causalities and outcomes in specific regions among specific peoples is vitally important. And at the same time, the vernacular of post-colonialism can become its own universalizing too. It can become its own broad brush when it declares, you have to understand every situation this way. You must see all things through this lens. This is how post-colonial thought sets itself up for its own ritualized tearing apart, which can and will happen, and is already happening. Academics caught up in the energetic pulse du jour in whatever phase of the wave unifying or diversifying happens to be in vogue at the moment would do well to remember that it's always a pulse and that their findings and sacred proclamations are simply little waves along the larger wave of that pulse too. Whatever the academic world consolidates into a knot of certainty will doubtlessly be torn apart. Whenever specific language comes into vogue and that language is immediately proclaimed to be the way things must be spoken of, it is sure to be dismantled a short decade later. The exact same sectors of society that were shouting, we're all one, 20 years ago, now might be shouting, we're all distinct, and might scoff in disbelief that anyone possibly ever saw it any other way. Of course, the true shape of the story is that both are true at once, the universal and the specific, the consolidated and the scattered, the in-breath and the out-breath, both exist at once. There is value to a universal vision, and there is value to a specific vision. The danger of the universal is that it can ignore specificity and sweep everything under one rug of sameness, when in reality we are far from being in the same situation. The danger of overly specific vision is that it can ignore commonality and stoke conflicts of difference. But the human organism can hold space for both. It's in the structure of how we breathe. It's in the architecture of a heart that expands and contracts, that draws back into itself and emits out of itself in a persistent wave. In healthy structures, this dialogue is like a circulatory system, a seamless flow between one and many. Journey and return. So, back to the hero's journey. The hero's journey is criticized because... Why? Well... It's usually a male hero, and he's usually doing a very traditionally male thing, acting as the rescuer, the man on a mission. And this forwards a paradigm, critics say, of hyper-individualism, of patriarchal values. It ignores communal problem-solving, communal paradigms of organization. He's always got to leave that hero guy. He's always got to go away. He's the absent male off in his own world, and he's got to triumph to vanquish in order to be successful. Often the creatures he triumphs over are feminized. Some say that certain heroes' journey stories directly invoke the triumph of patriarchal cultures over goddess-worshipping cultures. Some say, why does he need to go anywhere at all? And all of these are valid criticisms. I'm all in favor of reframing hero's journey stories to not be so man on a solo mission, 
or so focused on individual triumph in a world that already overvalues individuals. I'm all for stories that re-envision communal problem-solving and that follow new and interesting trajectories in terms of character and plot and dialogue. And I'm all for revamping gender roles and myths, which many myths themselves already do. I say bring it on. And yet, here's the thing. We're not going to get rid of the basic shape of hero's journey stories. The primal, circular, energetic, the crisis, departure, initiation, the helpers, the plummet into the abyss, the climax, and the return. We're not going to get rid of it because it's the shape of the breath. It's the shape of the phases of the moon. It's the shape of the seasons. It's the shape of the ribcage. It's the shape of brain waves. It's the shape of hormonal cascades and reabsorptions. It's the shape of the dance between lovers. It's the shape of the beat of the drum, which is the shape of a beating heart. It's the shape of sound, which is the very medium of story. As Black Elk said, quote, Everything the power of the world does is done in a circle. The sky is round, and I've heard that the earth is round like a ball, and so are the stars. The wind in its greatest power whirls. Birds make their nest in circles, for theirs is the same religion as ours. The sun comes forth and goes down again in a circle. The moon does the same, and both are round. Even the seasons form a great circle in their changing, and always come back to where they were. The life of a human being is a circle from childhood to childhood, and so it is in everything where power moves. Our teepees were round like the nests of birds, and these were always set in a circle. The nations who nest in many nests where the spirit meant for us to hatch our children. The shape of this story is a circle. The shape of this story whirls. It whirls and spirals. What is the hero's journey? The hero's journey is this. It whirls. The hero's journey goes the shape of the story, the shape of the story is the shape of sound waves. Uttered story, sung story, encanted story, invoked story is meant very directly to take the listener on a spiraling journey of crisis, initiation, and return. It's meant to take the listener on the traverse of trance. It's meant to transport through sound because the sound is the wave shape of the traverse itself. These spoken words here now originate in the resonance chamber of my body and pass through the air directly into you and vibrate within your skull. The shape of the story is the shape of the inside of your skull vibrating in resonance. The experience of uttered story, as Walter Ong says in Orality and Literacy, is interior. It is built on the interiority of sound. It is felt rather than analyzed. Quote, a sound-dominated verbal economy is consonant with harmonizing tendencies rather than with analytic dissecting tendencies. Vision is a dissecting sense, he says. So, yeah, the auditory experience is harmonic. Sound is immersive in a way that visual stimuli is not. The visual experience of reading is analytic and individualized. Uttered sound, as Ong says, is, quote, sympathetic and participatory rather than objectively distanced. 
it reverberates within us. It is a shared force between us. It is invoked communally, sung communally. The individual hero protagonist gives us a line of trance traverse within ritual communal enactment. Our minds link to the hero as a thread. Their heroic deeds provide reverberatory impact. Noetic weight, as Ong calls it. Sonic resonance. Sympathy and participation. This is how minds are moved. Communities are shaken awake. Paths are forged. Quote, Because in its physical constitution as sound, the spoken word proceeds from the human interior and manifests human beings to one another as conscious interiors, as persons, the spoken word forms human beings into close-knit groups. End quote. He speaks of the link between speaker and audience, and then says this, If the speaker suddenly asks the audience to pause and read a handout, as each reader enters into his or her reading world, the unity is shattered. Critics of primeval story structures often miss the baseline energetics at work because the analysis happens on paper, in an individualized, isolated, detached framework free from context. In context, the journey stories are the ritualized, enacted journey of somatic consciousness itself. The hero's journey is nothing more than the journey of the consciousness of the listener while hearing the story. It's a single protagonist journey because the individual consciousness needs one point of focus to follow on the traverse into trance. The Indian lineages will come right out and tell you this. Indra is consciousness. The seat of Indra is the palate is the seat of consciousness. The hero is consciousness. Now, can heroes' journey stories be used to reinforce oppressive systems? Absolutely, and that's a separate topic that's worth exploring. For today, I'm working to get us to feel energetic movements, to feel shapes reverberating, to move from the analysis of written words to the immersive traverse of uttered sound, sound in which stories lift and cast down, squeeze Coil, reverberate, transform. There's probably no more archetypal hero than Heracles. Heracles and his twelve heroic tasks slaying lions, chopping the heads off of hydras, running boars up mountains. But the stories of Heracles are much more than the stories of a manly hero. They are stories of specific directional energetics. The defeat of the lion is a story of sealing off, of drawing inward. The defeat of the boar is a story of rising. The slaying of the sea serpent Ledon is a story of constraint and release. The journey of Heracles, whose name, by the way, means glory of the mother goddess, the journey of Heracles is the journey of prana through cosmos and body through the ear of the listener initiate down into their guts and up through the crowns of their heads and out through their trembling fingers. The stories of Heracles are invocations of specific directionalities, directionalities that any somatic practitioner or yogi or birthing mother or warrior would understand. For mastery of these directional energetics was far more valuable for human success for many, many thousands of years than abstract analysis was. What do I mean? What determines the success of a wild aurochs hunt? Is it 
how well one can think about abstractions, how well one can find hidden meanings, or how well one actually somatically follows a line, how well one finds a steady center in the midst of endless undulant involutions, how well one hears sounds and recognizes shapes, slight changes in the shape of a track, and in the end, when it comes to it, how well one coils and releases, expands and contracts, rises and falls, leaps, and in the midst of a bellowing world, amidst the thunder of hooves and the gleam of horns and the bristling fur and the shouts of fellow hunters, how well the spear finds the red mark of center. Stories needed to transmit energy. They needed to breathe. They needed to invoke coiling and splitting and birthing and dying and expanding and shrinking and centering. This necessity to transmit dynamism created grand movements in stories. It required that great stones be hurled, landscapes be cracked open and remade, that primal forces gush forth, because these were the primal energetic directionalities of creation itself that needed to be embodied for individual beings to successfully navigate life. Maui raises the sky. Hanuman seizes the sun. This is far beyond saying, look how powerful my gods are. It is a way to directly transmit and move energy in the listener. The somatics of ancient stories serve to shake awake and move energy. This isn't the somatics of the office or the modern classroom, in which we sacrifice all the dynamic currents of the present moment and remain frozen now in hopes of trading it all in for currency later. The success metrics of our ancestors were immediate somatic metrics. Can the hands shape a vessel that holds water? Can I apply steady downward and back and forth pressure to a fire stick over and over, with sufficient focus to ignite one single ember? Can the birthing mother find the particular balance of push and root and release and surrender? Can we find food? We are going to need somatic success metrics in the world that is coming. We are going to need to reacquaint ourselves with centering, coiling, spiraling. We're going to have to cultivate what one friend of mine calls spiritual jujitsu if we're going to avoid this world of lettered abstraction devolving into all-out chaos. We're going to need Ariadne's thread to guide us through this labyrinth. Ariadne's thread, now a term conflated with logic, was always meant to be somatic, something we feel, a tug, a pull, a connection, a thread in the dark. Something that is communicated, as Martin Shaw says, from soul to soul. The shape of this story is a single thread in a winding labyrinth. The shape of this story is an umbilical cord. The shape of this story is the navel of the world. The shape of this story is a passageway to a place called presence. That's the journey. The fundamental energy that moves through stories also moves through bodies and through the cosmos in the same exact ways. 
Anyone who has practiced somatic movement systems understands this. In Xing Yi Chuan, the Chinese internal five-element kung fu that I studied as a teenager, the elemental forces of metal, water, wood, fire, and earth move and combine throughout the body, the society, and the cosmos. The cosmos is a dynamic interplay of splitting, drilling, crushing, pounding, settling, and each of these movements is enacted through somatic practice. Metal splitting, energy moving downward like an axe through wood. Water drilling, spiraling upwards like water cresting into a wave. Wood crushing, energy moving forward like tree roots through stone, like ants demolishing orthanc. Fire pounding like concussive blasts exploding from center outwards. Earth. Crossing like the settling force of silt and mud, like gravity drawing from the outside in and down. Bagua Zhang, another Chinese martial art, identifies this power of the cosmos and its movement in the body as Luo Xuan Jin, the spiraling power. Practitioners cultivate coiling, packing, releasing, wrapping as they perform movements that invoke the movement of energies with names right out of the myths. Purple swallow scissors its tail. Shut the door, push the moon. Tiger leaps from cave. White snake entwines the body. Hug the moon. Ape picks fruit. Sparrow skims the water. Horizontally sweep a thousand heads. And, of course, lion vomits book. Movements with distinct trajectories and shapes. In yogic practice, these same elemental energies are described as the five pranas. Rising, rooting, gathering, pervading, connecting. Prana, the vital energy of the universe, moves centrifugally, centripetally. It emits, it reabsorbs back into itself. It does this in the cosmos and it does this in the body. The stories that form the Indian mythic corpus are... Pranic. They move. Sages dart about and fly and evoke and utter and reshape and coil and constrain. The act of drawing inward over and over again generates frictional heat. Fire. Sages practice thousands of years of restraint in order to rocket skyward. They withdraw in order to emit. There are massive inflows and outflows evoked in the stories. Serpent bodies gush with soma. Nagas coil. Devas radiate. Heavenly weapons devastate. Mother, the ring of your bell and the twang of your bow saved me, cries the Devi Mahatmya. It's not an idea. It's not a metaphor. It's invoking directly the transformative power of sound. Hanuman, son of the wind, a name synonymous with prana, with life force, shrinks, expands, leaps, flies. The songs of Hanuman radiate life force, his golden fur, his flashing earrings, his strong limbs, his great leaps. His awesome devotion. Jaya Hanuman Gyana Gunasad Jaya Kapishati Hunloka Ujjad Ramadutta Tulita Baladama 
Anjani Buddha Pavana Prana, life force. These stories sung, invoked, incanted are energetic in nature. They are meant to stir consciousness, to stimulate prana, to wake devotion, spark awe, and when anchored with ritual practice, facilitate the actual movement of energies in bodies. Issues that arise in these stories aren't dealt with psychologically or mentally or analytically. There's no abstraction. There aren't archetypes. Analysis is far less important than the actual energetic somatics. Issues are addressed pranically through directional shifts, rootings, absorptions, emissions. The devas need to find a rogue ashura hiding on the sea floor. So sage Agastya stoops and cups his hands and opens his mouth and swallows the entire ocean. Swallows the ocean. The shape of this story is swallowing, is assimilating inwards towards center. The sage journeys south. Mountains rise to block his path. The world is dynamic, animate, tugs us back and forth, asks that we rise, that we root, that we coil, that we pulse between drawing in and radiating out, that we know when to restrain and when to express, when to gather sap in and when to grow new leaves. The stories invoke in us the power of seasons, of breath cycles, of ritual awe, not as ideas, as lived cyclical realities. Constraint and expression. Constraint and expression. The shape of this story is constraint and expression. When do I draw in? When do I radiate out? When do I say that thing? When do I hold my tongue? When do I conserve vital energy? When do I send it flying out to the four directions and 33 heavens? The battle of Shiva and Kama, the roiling, rollicking mashup of yogic constraint and desirous expression, is a story of directional energetics. Kama, the five senses incarnate. Kama, the churner of hearts. On his blazing green, ruby-beaked parrot, teeming with life, wants Shiva, the withdrawn, ash-covered yogi, to get out and procreate. Shiva has lost his wife, you see, and has decided that material reality is for fools. So on the surface, he is Kama's polar opposite. One conserves vital energy alone on the mountain, away from the world. The other expresses it widely, drips it everywhere like the dark sap of the banana flower oozes tejas. One withdraws, the other broadcasts. They are locked in an eternal battle that involves internal and external powers, bows made of sugarcane, transformation into buzzing bees, floral weapons named thrill and fascination. The battle moves from the cosmic level, shaking mountains and oceans and the foundation of worlds, to the internal as Kama turns into a bee, enters Shiva's body, and tries to vibrate Shiva's internal energy channels from the inside. The story gets inside you. Third eyes wake, fires of time erupt, incineration, ash, death. All the desire in the world suddenly freezes, and the goddess pleads for a great reawakening. The lord of yogis complies, shedding tears of rejuvenating lunar nectar, silver-white soma from his limitless eyes. 
there is life in this story, death in this story, resuscitation, rejoining, joyous wedding, all capped off by a 10,000-year rut on the newlyweds' wedding night. Moods shift, arrows fly. Who wins the battle? Kama is fried to ash, but Shiva marries. The battle is not a battle. It's a dynamic. It's a shape. The shape of the story is an ongoing dynamism between holding energy and releasing it. With vital implications for every body worker, healer, storyteller, meditator, monk, householder, mother, father, teenager, student, teacher, its terms are energetic. It's not an allegory. It's meant to vibrate the human instrument. Do we need another dry allegorical lesson? It's good to strike a balance between containing and releasing. No, let's get into the vibrant, dripping energetics of it. Let's stir the honeybees awake. That's where the magic is. Do I have to say that the myths are alive? Do I have to say that they are forces of vibrancy and radiance that roam the world, landing in bodies, stimulating energies, buzzing us awake? Do you feel this pulse? Do you feel it as it breathes, as it draws in, as it radiates out? The shape of this story is drawing inwards, drawing inwards, drawing inwards. There's a black hole at the center of the galaxy, have you heard? At the center of all this outward shining brilliance, this mandala of a hundred billion stars, is a 14.6 million mile vacuum, four million times the weight of the sun, bending the fabric of space-time and sucking light into its center. Do you feel it? Can you hear the sucking sound, the whoosh, the vacuum? Listen to the energetic shape of this story. Long, 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 long ago, when minds were synonymous with space-time, and sages drank oceans and shrank into atoms and traversed vast cosmic ranges simply by focusing their thought, an Ashura named Raktabija obtains through his rhythmic practice of inward restraint a boon of great power. He asks the gods, like most do, to grant him immortality, but that is the one gift that is never granted. So instead he asks that every time a drop of his blood hits the ground, another Raktabija, a carbon copy of himself, equal in strength and ferocity, equally formidable on the battlefield, will be born. And that wish is granted. So with all that unchecked power, he goes on a killing rampage across the cosmos, confident that none will ever slay him. The gods are terrified. They call on Durga, the great mother goddess, shining, radiant, flashing with bling, bearing golden weapons. Durga meets Raktabija on the battlefield. But the outward blaze of Durga's attacks only makes the problem worse. She wounds Raktabija with her sword, and his blood splatters across the battlefield, and a thousand more Raktabijas rise up and join the battle. What are the gods to do? Well, they need Kali. They need the black hole. Black as the space from which no light escapes, yet with a spine of lightning bright as a billion suns, thunderous, horrible, beautiful, beyond all dualities, beyond space, beyond time, 
Kali. She opens her mouth, the mouth of the abyss itself, and lets her great tongue loll out, and with a horrible sucking sound she draws everything in towards her. She drinks all the drops of blood, and then she drinks the army of Raktabijas, and then she drinks Raktabija himself and swallows him. All are drawn into her irresistible mouth, sucked into the goddess's maw. The swallower she is called devouring time, space, light, creation itself. Do you feel it? The shape of this story is drawing inwards. All radiant worlds collapsing in towards an infinite dimensionless center. It's a story of black holes. It's a story of how consciousness moves. Sometimes you need Durga, and sometimes you need Kali. Sometimes you need the outward blaze, and sometimes the inward draw. This same shape, the shape of dark magnetism, exists in the stories of Krishna, whose name means the dark one. Krishna Kali is the dark attractor, the magnet at the center of the radiant dance of creation. The stories of Krishna are stories of a magnetic center surrounded by concentric circles of ornamented wheels of radiant motion. The circles of gopis dancing, their scintillating skirts, this is the cosmos in motion, the motion of consciousness. At the center is the irresistible one, the magnet, focus, attention. The gopis flock to him like stars collapsing into void. These are stories of centrifugal and centripetal force. The turning, churning wheel that fires galaxies and drives minds and bodies with the exact same wave dynamics. The animate forces at the heart of stories are directional forces. This is why muse means movement, nymph means flow, titan means strain, prometheus means forward, prana also means forward, kundalini means coiled, bindu means point. The stories are stories of shapes, of directional forces. The shape of this story is the shape of a spiraling wheel of forces. River currents, lunar orbits, morning glory tendrils, datura flowers. The Kumari Kakandaha praises the adamantine wheel of the goddess's energies, her spinning net of flames. The shape of this story is a wheel of fire, a tongue of flame uttering into infinity. The temple at Jalandhara is built around the story of the tongue that blazes her vibrational utterances forever. The shape of this story is the shape of a tongue that utters forever. The flaming net of nature's energies, atomic, ionic, nuclear, electromagnetic, gravitational, these are her ornaments, this is her garland. One of the names of the goddess, and therefore the universe, and therefore the consciousness, and therefore the protagonist of the story, is Bindumalini, the little garland. the little garland around the point. The universe is a little garland. Picture her .00001 seconds after the Big Bang, the little garland around the point. She fans outward like a peacock tail, shines, they say, like a network of emeralds, strings the countless mantras and vibrational harmonics of the universe along her body, erupts into letters and sounds and mother energies. She is dynamism. This is her story. Stories invoke dynamism, 
transmit dynamism, transport dynamically with the shape of the energies that live at the heart of the story. The sea serpent coils inwards, coils, coils, coils in endless involutions. The serpent coiling its body inward and holding waters is in mythic visions from Greece to China to Scotland to India. The serpent coils itself around the waters. The shape of this story is coiling and releasing, coiling, coiling. The serpent gathers all the waters, gathering, coiling. Tell me, tell me a story of coiling. Tell me a story of coiling. Tell me a story of spirals. Tell me, is there a story that can be told without spirals? Is there such a story? Storytellers, use your words to spiral, to infuse, to pervade, to squeeze. The story exists to squeeze us. The story exists to make of us a rosary. The story coils and coils and coils and coils itself around us. And then it releases. The serpent body bursts open and there is a flood of life-giving water. A flood of life-giving water, the shape of this story is an eternal life-giving cascade. This story is an overflowing cauldron, an ever-flowing stone, a downpour of nectar. This story is a holy grail that pours luminous water forever. The shape of this story is a skull cup brimming with nectar that pervades the three worlds. The shape of this story is a cauldron teeming with awan, poetic broth that pours eternally into the skulls of bards and emits out of their mouths. The shape of this story is the shape of honey. The shape of this story is the shape of the wound on Jesus' side that gushes with blood and water. The shape of the story is a cave with a spring in it, where the iatromantic trance ritual happens. Where is the cave? Where is the overflowing cup? Where is the holy grail pouring forth with eternal water? The shape of this story is the shape of your own skull. Mythologist Joseph Sansonese posits that storytellers in ancient mystery cults held a human skull in their hands as they told stories and traced the journey across the bones as they spoke. The great journey, the great traverse of the story took place right at the brows, right at the upper palate, right at the pineal gland, a journey of an inch and a billion light years at the same time, a journey to find stillness at the center of this moving world to find union, to find home. The shape of this story is infinite dynamism around a still center. The shape of this story is the shape of Medusa's head, her dynamic locks, her stone-still eyes. The shape of this story is a single unchanging pearl at the center of the sea serpent's coils. The shape of this story is the Orphic egg. The shape of this story is the Shiva stone and the womb spout that pours forth with offering residue. The shape of this story is an infinite mandala of expression creation, emanating from and returning to a single blazing point. The shape of this story is creation. From the Kumarika Kandaha comes this description of the great mother goddess and her vibratory configurations, the story of her shapes. Quote, If she is propensed to make the universe which is in a seed state manifest... She is Vama, because she vomits out the universe and assumes the curved shape of an elephant hook. In the same way, she is a straight line whose form is experienced in the persistence of the universe. 
When the universe withdraws, she reverses and becomes a point. When the universe emits in its active state, she becomes a triangle. If I lost you at vomiting out the universe, forget about all your teenage vomiting associations and consider the shape. The energy of the shape, the forceful bending that powerfully emits. The story is the story of how dynamic energy works. One could just as easily say she births the universe, but there's something deeply evocative, deeply forceful about the power of contraction and expulsion that can only be conveyed this way. The universe convulses into being with power. See, it's evoking the power of that shape. The mother goddess operates through dynamic shapes. As Kundalini, she coils and springs and bends her way through creation. This is why she's called Kubjika, the hunchback, like a bending wave. Her story is the story of waves, the wave that exists in all stories. Quote, Do you not know this? Just as someone with a big body who moves into a small house must enter it with the body bent, such is she, the great goddess. How is it that she is bent over? Just as one who bends over enters everywhere, similarly, as her form is contracted, she pervades everywhere. Then she is Kubjika, the bent-over goddess. Do you feel the shape? The small house is space-time. The goddess bends to create, bends to birth the universe, bends to make the vibrational waves that constitute reality, bends to feed her children, bends in pleasure, bends in pain, bends the strings of space-time to make the music of temporal reality. Quote, in the center of the mandala, the goddess blazes in the form of the fire of time that resounds with her bending. The shape of this story is bending and swaying. The shape of this story is bending and swaying. And what instigates this bending, this contraction, this eruption of vibrational waves that pervades everything? Love. The goddess bends space-time, bursts the world for love. The reason I mention this story so often is because it has it all. It's a journey story and a creation story and a story of the cosmos and a story of the community and a story of the individual consciousness and a story of multitudinous energetic shapes and transmissions, a story of bending and swaying dynamism around a still center drawing inwards to blaze outwards, journeying and returning, rising and falling, coiling and releasing, points and lines and hooks and triangles. The story is the story of the vibratory power of creation itself, and it is the story of each breath that we take in our bodies. And these two things have the exact same shape. And most of all, it directly tells us that this is what it is. It directly tells us that it is a story of the goddess that is also the story of how vibration pervades everything. And this story takes place on the cosmic level and the communal and in the body of the practitioner. It tells us directly that the story exists to move energy through the body and describes for us exactly all the ways that energy moves. Scattering, 
consolidating, bending, swaying, coiling, releasing, expanding, contracting. This is what stories do. Why? So that we might feel these dynamics and learn to navigate them. For medieval yogis, that meant a lifetime spent working with coiling and releasing and rechanneling in very specific and laborious ways. For us in the modern world, it might mean understanding just a little bit more what it is to navigate life through feeling primal energetics and wave dynamics, not as a replacement for analytical thought, but as a somatic return, a reclaiming of Ariadne's thread. Far more of our interactions in this world are determined by energetics, wave dynamics, centripetal and centrifugal forces than we like to give credit to. This is a somatic world. We navigate its currents, attune to its harmonics, bend and sway and orbit its centers in bodies that move. The story of our lives is a story of currents and whirlpools. There are wave dynamics that exist in any relationship. There are shapes to our story that we can begin to feel. What is the shape of my consciousness? What is the shape of it after four hours sweating in the wilderness versus four hours on Facebook? What directional forces are moving within me? Is there too much upward and outward? When do I need to root? If my head is in the clouds, maybe I need to lie down on the ground. When do I need to draw into the solace of the cave? When do I need to go on a journey? What do the stories say? What does the moon say? How can I enact a journey of return? How can I find my way through the forest home? Home, home, home. The shape of this story is rejoining. The shape of this story is returning home. There's always a return. Stories with ambiguous endings simply end before the return. But there's always a return. The breath returns, the mind returns, the body eventually returns to the earth. Ashes to ashes, universes resolve. So many fairy tales end with weddings. So many myths are about cosmic conjoining. To wed in the mystic sense is to join with the cosmos, to experience a great remembering. The stories join us. They take us on a traverse whose destination is joining. We remember somatically. We remember through uttered words. We remember through waving hands like clouds. We remember in the circle dance. We remember in the asana practice. We remember by the story fire. By the story fire, the storyteller, eyes glinting, hands gesticulating, evoking directional energies that surge and scatter and coil and finally join. The shape of this story is remembering. The shape of this story is love. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. There are patronage levels starting as low as $6 a month, and for this $6 a month, you get access to our ongoing Mythic study group. There are two sessions a month, and they're about two hours each, 
and there are recordings available for those who can't join live. And it's a wonderful way to interact with other listeners of the podcast, to talk about mythic subjects, to explore the subjects that we explore on the podcast on a deeper level. And it's really the equivalent of two workshops per month for the price of six bucks. So I think it's worth it. If you're interested in becoming a patron, go to patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. As you can imagine, putting together these episodes takes quite a bit of research and effort and sound editing and all of that. So I really appreciate your patronage. It really helps and our patronage base is growing and that gives me a real great sense of joy. And I hope we continue to grow and learn together. And for those who have been patiently waiting for an announcement on my upcoming year-long course, it is coming within the next few days. I'm just putting a few final touches so that I know what I'm talking about when I announce it. And the announcement will be coming very, very soon. So thanks for your patience. This episode contains reference to many books, articles, movies, etc. These include Kurt Vonnegut's failed master thesis on the shape of stories, a research article for the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America entitled Speaker-Listener Neural Coupling Underlies Successful Communication by Greg J. Stevens, Lauren Silbert, and Uri Hassan, Orality and Literacy by Walter Ong, Recapture the Rapture by Jamie Wheel, the Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien. Data Mining Reveals the Six Basic Emotional Arcs of Storytelling, an article in Technology Review in July of 2016. The Body of Myth by Joseph Sansonese. The Bakke by Euripides. The books Smoke Hole and A Branch from the Lightning Tree by Martin Shaw. The Kumari Kakandaha, the section of the Mantana by Ravatantra concerning the Virgin Goddess, translation and commentary by Mark Diskowski. Black Elk Speaks by John Nehart. The Devi Mahatmya, the Hanuman Chalisa. Flute music by Max Brumberg. You can check out Max's work at maxbrumbergflutes.eu. How Stories Connect and Persuade Us, Unleashing the Brain Power of Narrative by Elena Rankin for NPR on April 11, 2020. The song Hanuman Chalisa Gate of Sweet Nectar by Krishna Das, and of course, The Jerk, the 1979 film by Steve Martin. And until next time, may our lives be driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Maybe you've hit bottom, but I haven't hit bottom yet. I got a ways to go, and I'm going to bounce back. And when I do, I'm going to buy you a diamond so big, it's going to make you puke. I don't want to puke.